I'm Alex Zane, and this episode is brought to you by Odeon. Tis the season for giving. And yes, new socks feel nice, a new jumper feels snug, but if you really want to treat a loved one this Christmas, there's no better gift than that cinema feeling. Sinking into comfy seats, absorbing spectacular surround sound whilst being immersed in crystal clear imagery, it's a feeling like no other. And you can gift that cinema feeling to a lucky loved one with an Odeon gift card. Pick up one at your nearest Odeon or online and cover someone's snacks, drinks, cinema tickets, or all three. And best of all, no wrapping up. Odeon say, we make movies better, so why not make a fellow film lover's Christmas better too? Tis the season after all. Also, just before we head to our fantastic virtual cinema, how would you like a pair of tickets to head to a fantastic and very real Odeon cinema? Because the lovely people at Odeon have handed us a pair of tickets to give away every show. So, if you'd like the chance to head to your nearest Odeon and enjoy a movie, all you need to do is leave us a review. I'll explain more at the end of the show, but congratulations to this week's winner, Solid and Void, who got in touch on Instagram, where we're at Trip to Movies Pod after listening to Sean Teal on last week's episode declare his unpopular movie opinion is that Titanic is not a good film. Solid and Void says, Couldn't agree more. This movie is what made me realise the Academy Awards don't indicate much. Titanic beating as good as it gets and goodwill hunting for best picture shows the lack of emphasis put on nuanced characters and good writing. Thank you very much, Solid and Void. Drop us an email to triptomovies at gmail.com and we will send you your Odeon cinema tickets. More details at the end of the show if you'd like to get a pair of tickets for yourself. Also, don't forget the full Sean Teal video interview is up on our Patreon along with all the other interviews from every single guest. Finally, for all the latest news and clips from the show, we are on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at triptomoviespod. Okay, back to this episode. If you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, the podcast where each week a special guest takes us on an incredible journey as they curate their perfect night out at our fantastic virtual cinema. This week we're joined by an amazing actor whose incredible CV includes I, Tonya, Black Klansman, Cruella and his stunning lead role in Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell. He can currently be seen in the superb Apple TV true crime drama Blackbird playing serial killer Larry Hall opposite Taron Edgerton. Taking us on today's trip to the movies, it's the supremely talented Paul Walter Hauser. Hello, Paul. Yay! Claps <laughs> and applause and flowers on the stage. Um, how you doing, Alex? Man, it's good to see you again. I was thinking, I think it was 2019 we last saw each other at the Q&A for Richard Jewell. Whoa. That was such a whirlwind for me. Where was that? Yeah, that was in Leicester Square, 2019, sort of late 2019, I think. Oh, yeah. No, now I remember. Yeah, man. That was cool. That was great, That was a really special night. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were talking about Richard Jewell. They're a real person, but like, let's come right up to speed. You're taking on another real person. So... Listen, Blackbird, man, what a gripping series. I think I did the whole thing in about three sittings. So just to summarize, it's the real-life story of a felon called Jimmy Keane, played by Taron Edgerton, who is offered the opportunity to have his 10-year sentence commuted if he acts as a mole for the FBI in prison to extract a confession from suspected murderer Larry Hall, who you play. So tell me, man, what attracted you to this project in the first place? Was it just different to what you'd done before? Was it the script? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, there's this thing with actors, and I can't say it's all actors, but I think a lot of them, I can safely say, a lot of them want to play odious people. It's not because they themselves are bad people. It's because who wouldn't want to kind of play something crazier or gross or sinister and kind of not have to feel bad about it? There, there is something innate in humans that makes that an attractive idea. Larry Hall's crimes are of a nature that I would not want to portray, uh, even for some creative kick. It had more to do with Dennis Lehane's writing. The fact that my dance partner is Taryn Edgerton. 
Uh, and at the time, I didn't even know who the rest of the cast was going to be. They hadn't all been chosen or deals hadn't been put in place. So, you know, imagine my surprise when it's like, oh, Greg Kinnear is going to be doing scenes with you. Also, you get a micro bit of a scene with Ray Liotta. It's like, dude, uh, it was amazing. And, and I'm glad I played this because I know in time, you know, they're going to ask me to play John Wayne Gacy. You know, they're going to be like, hey, you're fat and kind of weird and a pretty competent, <laughs> dramatic actor. You want to play this guy? Like, I don't want to play John Wayne Gacy, really. Um, I'd, I'd rather play Larry Hall with Dennis Lehane's dialogue, you know? I mean, it's a truly, truly chilling performance. I mean, he's he he, he is, you know, a, a, a fascinating character, this cunning, yeah. deceptive, game-playing man. What is it like for you as an actor inhabiting a character like that? Not fun would be would be the answer. Uh, but also, like, you know, you're playing a human being first. If you don't do the groundwork of who the human being is and how they got to where they are, then you're just kind of like, it's like saying you have a house because you bought wallpaper. Like you, you got to really justify that base before you buy all the visual trappings of what makes that room an actual room. And uh, with Larry, that veritable room was built really well with, with the backstory of the abuse, emotional abuse of his father, the sort of scientific medical abuse of having your nutrients kind of uh, feasted on by your other twin in the womb. Uh, like there were, there were just enough things where I went, yeah, I can see, I can't understand how he kills and rapes women. I don't understand that, but I can understand some of his emotions and resentments and fears that were then part of the, you know, concoction that stirs the cauldron. I, I get, I get the makings of some of that. Um, and that's really helpful because then you're not twisting your mustache and playing a villain. You're playing a, um, a broken psychotic person, which we have broken psychotic people running our country over here. I don't know about you. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, not that same. shocking to us over here. Yeah. Mm. Um, you mentioned your dance partner, Taryn Edgerton. How, how was it having someone to work uh, so close to this? Cause this is a study of these two characters, uh, relationships, these two men's relationships. How was it having someone who, um, allowed you the space, I guess, to improvise and experiment and perhaps approach scenes in different ways, in different takes. It's all about communication, right? That's what mar mm. married couples who've been together for 30 years, so communication, communication, communication. Um, acting is not uh, dissimilar. Acting is, and you know, some actors are like, don't tell me anything. Let's keep it fresh. We're just going to go into it. And I'm like, okay, but don't get pissed off at me if I make a choice and you don't like it. And then you act like I'm <laughs> ruining your process. It's like, <laughs> it makes way more sense to talk it out previous and to make sure there are ground rules, almost like an intimacy, an intimacy coach. There should be almost be some creative coaching as far as what are the boundaries? What are we trying to accomplish? And know that I will always do the scripted version and I will always make sure the director and studio showrunner, whomever are getting what they need before I start to dance outside of the lines, you know? Uh, mm. And, and I think Taryn got that. And, and I think sometimes when I would improvise or try something, it would then spark him to have a spontaneous response. And some of that stuff ended up in the final cut. How was it at the end of the day? I mean, was it, was there a palpable sense of relief, like shaking off Larry when they, they call the final yeah. cut on the day? Yeah, I would say the the trivial topical nature of it was like it's New Orleans in the summertime. I'm wearing a jumpsuit and a bunch of hair and makeup, you know, uh accoutrement. Mm. It was nice to take all that off and uh shed it. And then emotionally, yeah, doing that high pitch voice and having to mean what you say when you say odious uh horrific things like yeah it's it's nice to talk like paul after mm -hmm. talking like larry for five hours um 
my my some of my downtime was really healthy where you know i go shoot shoot hoops and play basketball at a gym for 90 minutes and burn 800 calories getting my own rebounds and you know uh i'd go try a sandwich shop like uh there's a place called turkey and the wolf in new orleans i would go uh-huh. there and get these immaculate a delicious creative pieces of culinary art known as the sandwiches there and uh those were like fun ways to blow off steam and kind of uh disconnect and then i think the bad version is you know i was also drinking heavily and ingesting a lot of marijuana and trying to really have a come down and i think that's fine to do in small doses but when it becomes your kind of first option and only option and then you ramp it up and you're stoned out of your mind watching Babe in your underpants, just <laughs> cackling at James Cromwell at three in the morning. You know, whatever version of that, I just it became very unhealthy and I got I had to get sober during the shoot. Uh, so I haven't had a drink since like July of 20, July of 2021. Yeah. Wow. And you I. I part of that you'd put down to playing this character or it was just a natural thing uh, organically outside of the role? It was everything outside of the role and in the role. There was a day where I, I kept screwing up my dialogue. And I mean like the kind of thing where you're doing like a fifth or sixth take and you're still messing up. And I was like, I'm, I need to be more accountable to my cast and crew. I need to be more accountable to my potential for giving a great performance and, and, you know, you just got to find better ways to deal with stress, you know, things like meditation, things like calling, because you don't have everything in front of you. You're on location. So it's like, hmm. I can't call up my buddy Caleb to go see a movie. Caleb's not there. So it's like, you got to pick up the phone. You got to do Zoom. You got to do something. I mean, congrats, though. I mean, the the, the plaudits have been pouring in. Um, I, I Again, not dissimilar to um, uh, the plaudits for... Uh, for Richard Jewell, which is where we we started the conversation, like I said, it was the, the last time we met. I I don't think I got to ask you at the time. Obviously, you're being directed in that film by a, a, an icon of cinema, a, a living legend, Clint Eastwood. I've always wondered, what's he like on set as a director when he's there directing you on set? What's 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 the Clint Eastwood you get on a movie set? I think you know he shows up very calm and gentle. He is delegating so much of the production to the department heads, uh, being, you know, camera operators, DP, uh, everybody from the sound mixer to, you know, the, the cast members. He's really looking at you like, I'm not micromanaging. You do what you do, and I'll let you know if we're, you know, out of focus collectively. And, uh, and that's very freeing and very inviting and very, you know, very uh what would i say very humble of him he he could be the total opposite he could be tyrannical if he wanted to you know you make mystic river and you make million dollar baby all of them you, mm. you can kind of you can you can be a, a dick if you want to but he wasn't i loved working for him he told great stories he threw great dinner parties i remember one time i and you know he, he's not a weak man but he's getting up there in age for goodness sake it's not mm. like he's a sprightly 175 with muscles so there was a night where i was when i was drinking um and it wasn't an issue it was just a lot of fun uh we drank a lot on richard jewel that's what i'm getting at. um no but <laughs> we uh you know you got sam rockwell and john ham and clint eastwood you, it's it's a very rowdy time of laughter and never stop pouring uh but we i had a bottle that i was trying to open a bottle of vino bottle of red i couldn't open it and clint takes it from me and puts a swiss army knife bottle opener into it like this tiny microscopic swiss army knife bottle opener and he's trying to open it and he can't open it i think he thought he could in about two minutes (laughs) in i'm like clint it's no big guy i can and he's so determined he puts it between his thighs and he's squeezing with all his might his bottle and fighting with two hands to get it up. I think it took him four to six minutes. And he finally popped the bottle. And I was like, this dude is badass. I'm so proud of him. uh, It was was a very funny moment to also, you know, uh, there were a couple moments where he'd try to match me. 
I'd like stretch my leg onto a countertop just to be funny, kind of a Chris Farley, Jack Black type of thing to do. Yeah. I'm a big guy. I'd, I'd like stretch my leg up five feet off the ground and Clint would see me doing it. And then he would kick his leg up and legit <laughs> match me. But if five feet off the ground, it's to say like, I can do it. And I'm 90, you know, like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of funny moments like that, man. He, you know, I, I wish to God I, I could work for him again, but the fact that I got to do it, it was pretty magical, pretty special. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. Well, like I said, the last time you and I were together, we were in a real cinema, but time now to head to our virtual cinema because, Paul, you are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Paul. Who have you chosen, living or dead, to go with you? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I, the first person that came to mind is Norm MacDonald. I love Norm MacDonald, and I feel like his sense of humor and his voice and his weird penchant for swinging between uh, intellectual earnestness and just abject tomfoolery, I, I think that would be very fun to engage with. Yes, I can see that. Have you have you been a fan for a while? Oh yeah, huge fan from Weekend Update. His movie Dirty Work, that cast is just insane. Don Rickles, Chevy Chase, John Goodman, Christopher McDonald. Chris Farley, like that movie's incredible. And, uh, and Norm, I'm sure it doesn't age well, but, uh, but it's hysterical. So everybody get over it. Uh, and I, I just love Norm McDonald's like interview stuff. You go on YouTube, you can spend two hours watching him and just sobbing, laughing. I think he's one of the funniest minds of all time. Comedy wise. And so um, what, what do you think makes him a good person to go to the cinema with? Purely because you, you you want to hang out with him, or is there something about him that says, "Yep, he'd be a good cinema buddy"? I think there's something egocentric to the choice because I look at myself as being equal parts abject idiot and deep thinker, surprisingly wise. So it'd be someone to kind of match what I think I do, and and I think he would equally care about the experience while also just goofing off. You know, that that's how I do everything. I go to an award show. It's not like I take it really seriously. I, I was just at the Emmys and I, you know, I was literally roasting the entire night's performance, trying to make Nick Holtz and Elle Fanning laugh. You know, it was, it, it, I, I would want someone with that likeness, that same, sameness. How, how were the Emmys, by the way? Good. Did you have a good night? I thought the show was pretty awful. But uh, <laughs> but I I I like some of the winners. You know, I'm really happy for Murray Bartlett, who's fantastic in White Lotus, and happy for mm. Jesse Armstrong for Succession. I got to hand him that trophy. That was really nice. Yeah, yeah. Good night. He's, uh, he's done all right as uh, Jesse Armstrong. I remember watching. He was uh, he made a show over here, Peep Show, which was like a huge sitcom over here. And now I love, he's like, I love Peep Show. I've oh, seen yeah. the show a bunch. Two, the two guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, I love it. Norm MacDonald is going with you to the cinema. Okay, there's a clock on the wall in the foyer reading a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Uh, we pre-bought tickets, but we still know there's a rush because it's opening weekend. The movie starts at 9.15. I get there at 8.45. Norm shows up about nine, nine o'clock. Uh, and we got about 15 minutes to take a piss, get stuff from concessions and not miss the trailers. Okay, good. Cause the trailers are important. I, 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 I don't get people who go, no, 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 we don't need to go for the trailers. The movie won't start until like 20 Ew. minutes after. Right. No, what a bunch of horse shit. No, I, you gotta, <laughs> You got to watch the trailer. The trailers are as much a part of the movie as anything. 100% agree. Agree. Okay. So 
We're going for the 9.15 screening. That's quite a busy screening, especially if it's opening weekend. I'm sensing you like a busy cinema then. You like the atmosphere of a crowd? Yeah, I, I like the shared experience, you know. There's something really uh, pure about that. Yeah. Like, I mean... Like, like I, 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 have, I have memories of seeing... Like, I saw Get Out in a packed theater. I saw The Sixth Sense in a packed theater. Like, you, you can't replicate how special that is. Um, it's such a unique experience. Now it kind of only happens with uh, Marvel DC cinema. Uh, very little becomes must-see outside of that. But uh, once in a while, you, you get that back with a, just a regular movie. And they are the moments you remember, aren't they? It's a strange thing about, you know, you are a bunch of strangers in a room. You you, you don't know each other whatsoever. You, you might not have any common ground outside of that room. But in that room, you are all experiencing exactly the same emotion that that film wants you to feel. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, It also unconsciously makes you appreciate other people. Mm. Honest to God. We all paid the same amount of money. Some of us got babysitters. We all had to park and find the snack. Some of us are having our cheap meal. Uh, you know, like, it, it's just there's something so full circumference about it. There's something very, it's more powerful than people realize. I don't think, you know, we, we don't go to churches the same way as we go to movies. Mm. We, we don't go to concerts the same way as movies. Because in a concert... You're you're trying to connect with the musician. In the theater, you're actually kind of connecting with everybody else. Uh and 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 you're having a more pure shared experience. Even even you know, in concerts nowadays too, these stupid idiots are holding their phones up. <laughs> they're they're it's like they're Michael Moore or freaking Morgan Spurlock going to a concert. It's like, dude, put your phone down, you idiot, and have a human experience. What are you doing? Uh, yeah. And movies, you, you don't do that unless you're pirating it. Yeah, you don't you don't last long in a movie theater with your phone pointed at the screen these days. That's a that's a no. that's a red flag right there. Right. So you've booked the tickets for us to take this trip. Where have you chosen to sit in the auditorium? The bottom of the middle. So you got the you got the very front, which is way too close to the screen. Mm-hmm. Behind that, you have a little gap. And then the the beginning of the middle has a front row with a a metal railing. We're sitting in the middle of the front row of the middle with our feet resting on the metal railing. Oh, I love that. That is is such a detailed image. I can see that right now. I'm down with that. So you're in the middle. You don't like an aisle seat because some people, they like an aisle. They don't like to be boxed in. No, I mean, an aisle seat can be nice on a, on occasion, but um, I, I kind of like being in the mix that opening weekend. Uh, and, and I also may, need to make sure I have enough room on the floor to kneel when Nicole Kidman gives her speech at the beginning of the film. I need to make sure I have room to kneel, raise a hand in the air and bow my head until she's finished reading Billy Ray's psychotic words. Is this? A, are you giving me a clue to what movie we might be watching later, or is this is this an event that has oh, happened? Oh no, no, no! At AMC theaters, Nicole Kidman gives a spiel at the beginning of the film where she's like, "We come to see magic. Heart heartbreak feels good in a place like this." You, you've okay. never seen this. Ne- we don't have this over here. We don't have AMC theaters, so she like Dude? this is a. Pe- Bro, immediately after this, go on YouTube, look up Nicole Kidman AMC Theaters, and you will you will see the most wonderfully ridiculous video that is played before every movie at an AMC theater. <laughs> I can't wait. Brilliant. So, I, 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 I mean, I, I mock it. I mock it when it's on. I get on my knees in the theater and I pretend it's like our national anthem or something. <laughs> Okay, and you described the words that I'm about to witness straight after this interview as psychotic, I believe the word was. I mean, uh, I think you'll at least share in part of that sentiment. 
I'm looking forward to that. All right, brilliant. It's it's just it's just funny because she's like, I'm one of you at a movie theater. It's like you you're <laughs> Nicole Kidman and you look otherworldly and you're saying strange things that we understand but don't fully resonate with. It's just like it's so it's such a it was like when all those celebrities tried to sing the John oh. Lennon song during COVID. You know how yeah. cringy that was? That's Awful. that's the Nicole Kidman thing. I made uh, I made a mock I made a mock video that's on my YouTube, I think. Um it's me and all my friends singing. Uh it's like me and Ken Jong and Chris Jericho and Anders Holm. All these guys are singing uh If You Could Only See by the band Tonic. You know that song? Uh-huh. If you could only see the way she loves me. It's us doing that for coronavirus. You have to look that up. <laughs> great. I got a busy evening after this interview. That's great. All right, then. The air in the foyer is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. Leaving popcorn to one side for a moment, what other snacks do you choose to eat? AMC Theatres in America has an impossible nugget. So it's a non-meat, like, vegan nugget made with, like, soy protein. It's delicious. I like it better than chicken nuggets. And they serve it with ranch dressing to dip. So I would get some impossible vegan nuggets with ranch dressing, a Sprite Zero, like Diet Sprite with extra ice. And a bag of Sour Patch Kids. So, like, you're not vegan, but the vegan nugget is better than the chicken nugget? I think so. And honestly, if you're getting chicken from a movie theater, it's probably genetically modified and is full of, like, ground-up bird beak and poop or something. It's probably awful. Yep. Yeah, I'd say so. That's a great order. Ranch dressing with impossible nuggets. Sprite Zero Extra Ice. And a pack of Sour Patch Kids. Now, I don't think we have Sour Patch Kids over here, but I'm guessing they're a really they're they're a sour sweet. That's what they I are. mean. It's a sour sweet. You know what we'll do? <laughs> oh, for you, I'll change it to a Malteser. <laughs> How about a Malteser? <laughs> I'd love a Malteser. I do not sound like that, but yeah, that's good. No, no, yeah. I, I, no I, I didn't mean to infer that you sounded like that. I just mean that's my voice when I talk about Maltesers. <laughs> it's a good voice. It's it's it's, it's, it's a good voice. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, you can have your Sour Patch Kids. I, I'm I'm transatlantic in my thinking. I'm open minded. Sour Thank Patch you. Kids. Thank you so. All much. right. Uh, but yeah, I do appreciate a Malteser. Um, popcorn then, sweet or salted? Um, salted, a little bit of extra butter. But if they have kettle corn, are you familiar with kettle corn? I am not. But this is a jur- this is a culinary journey I'm on right now, and I'm There's loving so it. Much- we just need to do a web series where you and I go on movie dates in America and you try stuff. Um, uh, kettle corn is like sweet and salt. Okay, so it's just it's so, just regular regular popcorn, but it's a mixture of sweet and salted. Yes, if they have kettle corn, I would choose that. Okay, um, I love the idea of butter. Uh, this is good. This is this is heartbreaking. Someone else, um, uh, uh, another American guest uh, on the show, was telling me about this. Uh, we don't have that over here. You cannot get buttered popcorn in the UK. It's just sweet. Or salted. This idea of pumping your own butter onto a, a warm butter, onto a, a box of popcorn, it sounds amazing. Doesn't happen in the UK. Why? I I don't. I honestly don't know. It's upsetting. That's like saying that's like saying you don't have seatbelts. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't understand that. But you know what? It's not real butter, though. It's not real butter. It's like some product where it like has butter flavoring but it's probably like horse plasma or something i don't know what it is but it's it sure as hell isn't real butter so maybe maybe you guys will live a lot longer than us i'm guessing 
Do you know what? That'll be it then. If it's uh, we have our, I think our food standards are pretty stringent over here. So if if it's not butter and is indeed horse plasma, it just won't make it over here. <laughs> By the way, the food in the UK has gotten so good from where it was like thirty years ago, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay. it's 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 got a lot better. I mean, are you are you LA based? Where are you based? I'm based in Los Angeles, but I, I shot that movie Cruella. Uh, in England, and I uh, I stayed in the Soho neighborhood of London, and I really I really had some amazing meals. I really love the food, especially the Indian food. Yeah, we do do good Indian food. I don't think there's that many good Indians in LA, if I'm right. Eh, decent, like you can still have a good Indian meal in LA, but not not like London, not like that. Okay, yeah. okay. And how do you find the service? Because, I mean, that's the one thing that that's the real big difference. Obviously, service culture in America is, you know, when you go there as a Brit, it's like, wow, the attentiveness. And obviously, you know, there's a tips form a big part of the, the paycheck for waiting staff, for hospitality staff in the U.S., which isn't always the same here. Yeah, I, I don't really know if there's that much of a difference, but I also went to kind of nicer, fancier places where people were pretty solicitous and helpful um i don't know where that goes across the board yeah i listen i sound like i'm doing a disservice to our wonderful waiting staff in the uk they're brilliant i just <laughs> wondered whether as an american you know you could t- sense a difference but you couldn't which is uh, great so well done us and i would say there's a difference in certain cities in america like if i go to atlanta and get a meal at a hotel the the people working at the hotel are miserable and they don't give a crap about you. They they borderline hate you. Um, <laughs> but but then if you go to like uh, a place like the Optimist, the seafood place, like that, they, they know how to treat you pretty well. I guess they're probably getting even better as well because so much stuff is shot in Atlanta now, isn't it? Like I said, there's a mm. huge industry there. Everything. All right, Paul. It's time to leave the foyer and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Posters along the cinema wall illustrate some of your most important movie memories. The first poster we're putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. What is it? I was born in 1986. I saw the film Home Alone, the winter of 1990, I believe it was. So I would have been four years old. It is my earliest film-going memory, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure. And we were in a small theater in my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan, at a place called Cinema Suds. It was called Suds, of course, for, for they served beer. So I'm a four-year-old kid in a theater room with no theater chairs. It's probably um, a movie screen that was like seven feet tall and maybe eight or eight or nine feet wide. It wasn't really that big. And there were tables instead of theater chairs. So we sat at a table. People were getting served glasses of beer, bowl, literal bowls of popcorn, and you could smoke cigarettes in the theater. So I have a vivid memory of sitting there four years old, watching Home Alone, cringing and laughing as Daniel Stern gets a spider on his face. (laughs) <laughs> while some dudes, while some dude like five feet away from me smoking a cigarette, it was crazy. It was just a crazy experience where it was like such a sign of that. It's it's such a uh, time capsule of what that was at that time. Uh, but also, it, it's what made me love movies, laughing my head off and just being shocked at watching a, a child beat up two adults. It was amazing. Uh, uh yeah. I mean. It's such a violent movie when you when you watch it now with that sort of as a kid it's pure slapstick but now you watch it and you're like that's that's it's, it's insane the the level of violence like the nail through the foot I always remember the paint cans down the stairs burning the hand of Joe Pesci when he touches the doorknob it's like yeah. it's really violent I think that's when kids movies were better we act like kids need to be sanitized and they can't handle stuff. It's like the stuff they go through on the internet is the scariest thing in the world and is unprecedented in its boundless nature. So 
movies like Home Alone or The Sandlot, like those, I, they need to make movies like that again, but I don't think they ever will. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember when they remade some new Tom and Jerry cartoons and they'd taken all the violence out of that. The, all the, like, the, the bits where, you know, Tom was like, you know, chopped up and very, I can't remember, but I do remember when they yeah. started the new ones uh, and it was like, there was just like Tom and Jerry with no violence. It was like the Simpsons episode where Marge has a... Uh, uh, Control over uh, the programming. Yeah, of whatever the cartoon is. Itching scratch. Oh, Jesus, uh, that was a waste scratch. of time. Terrence and yeah. Philip. No, that's South Park. Speaking of, real quick, real quick. I saw Team America yeah. World Police October 15th on my birthday of 20, 2004. I laughed till I cried and felt sick. Me and my friends were falling out of our movie theater seats, crying, laughing. Um, I, I would hoist that up there as my number two just below Home Alone. All right. Okay. But I'm going to put, I can, I've only got space for one poster. So while Team America sounds brilliant and I've loved that film, I, I, I do love that film. Home Alone. Home Alone's going yeah. up there. That's our first poster. Home Alone. Okay. The second poster depicts your worst movie memory. Um, I got motion sickness to the point of having to leave the theater and like vomit when I saw Born Supremacy. I love the first Bourne movie, and I thought Doug Lyman did a great job. But that second one, when I think Paul Greengrass took over, it was just like the camera was all over the place. I hated it. And, uh, and I was physically ill and couldn't finish the movie in the theater. Like, l literally, like you actually ejected your dinner. Oh, no, I didn't literally vomit. I felt like I was going to vomit. I had a headache. And I couldn't go back into the theater and finish it. I sat in the lobby. Um, oh, I also, I walked out of the movie Kong Skull Island. That was, that was another really bad experience. I, I just hated that movie. I thought it was terrible. That's interesting. Of all the big monster fighting monster, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Godzilla versus Kong, all of those, Kong Skull Island's the only one that I, I actually enjoy. And I think it's mainly uh, down mm. to a, John C. Riley's performance, like he actually seems to know that it's a stupid movie, like having fun with it. My, my whole thing is if, if one person's performance in a supporting capacity is like the really redemptive part of the movie, it's probably a pretty bad movie. But, uh, <laughs> That's a great point. But, but yeah, that, that was my frustration is you get this giant, amazing cast. You know, Thomas Mann is like number 12 on the call sheet. And and I felt like nobody was utilized well, and it just felt really soulless and dumb. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll stop talking crap about that movie and not get a hate on the internet. <laughs> I'm not putting up Kong Skull Island, but I am putting up the Born Supremacy for giving you motion sickness because of the. It is. I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. It it does feel like it's um it's taken uh the born identity and dialed it up to 11 with the uh, amount of like shaky cam. It's you know, a lot. Going to have a car chase. I want to see the car chase. I don't want to see a tire and then a, a, a pedestrian and then the sky for a bit. <laughs> right then let's move on yeah. to the third poster. It depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. I cried while watching, while rewatching the movie, the family stone like two days ago. Uh, this, you know, Diane Keaton's performance in the film, I think, is really grounded and honest and real. And there were a couple moments that made me get choked up. But there's one really good one with Dermot Mulroney realizing or coming to grips with his mother's impending death. And, and just seeing Dermot have a really honest moment and kind of break down in her arms. That was that, that did me in. And you actually, you, you you do cry. You did like literally cry. Like uh, you you cry I, I, at film. I cry all the time at movies and TV. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, so do I. I don't. I I I think it's a brilliant thing. I think, uh, and I I think the best cries that you do are when you're not being manipulated. Like uh, I watched the end of It's a Wonderful Life the other day, and I, I felt it was like Ooh. a really wholesome cry because it wasn't manipulating me. It was. It was just great storytelling. 
I cry every time I watch that movie. Every time. Yeah. I think it's the bit where Harry goes to the richest man I know about George, and you're like, oh, God, it's beautiful. It's, All right, it's then. that, and the, the other part that gets me is when it's like the end of the first act, Jimmy Stewart gets in Potter's face after his father's death, and he goes, uh, <clears throat> well, is it too much to ask to live in a home with a couple of rooms and a decent bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. Like, when he gives that impassion, it's like, dude, my father didn't think so. Like, standing up for his dad's legacy, which was literally just sweat equity and morality. Uh, that gets me every time, too. And isn't it mad? I mean, like, uh, Potter, Mr. Potter is truly one of cinema's most evil villains. Like, there's no redemption. Like, there's no bit, there's no There's no cutaway at the end where you sort of, like, see, like, oh, I, actually, he's not that bad. He's realized the mistake of his ways or anything like that. The guy is just evil. Yeah, Mr. Potter is kind of like Donald Trump meets Bill Gates. It's somebody, it's someone openly using deception to control massive amounts of things while also just being a horrible person. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Potter is like top three cinema villains all time. All right, then. So the Family Stone is our third poster. Our final poster depicts... Your unpopular movie opinion. What is it? Uh, I think The Usual Suspects is nothing without its ending. That movie is literally nothing without that moment at the end. Um, I, I love Kevin Pollack. I, I love, you know, some of, some of the cast and stuff. There's a couple cool moments, but like, if that movie doesn't have the ending it has, does anybody care about it? So when you're talking about the ending, are we talking about the, the bit where the, the FBI agent realizes that he's been looking at everything behind him on the wall and just pieced together an entirely fabricated story, verbal Kintas? Yeah, yeah. The, the moment when Chaz Palminteri drops the mug and That's Spacey right. starts. What a prophetic moment, by the way. Of, of Spacey going from looking like the victim to being the villain. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a br it's a brilliant moment. It's a good moment, but it's like, if you take that away, I don't know that I care about that movie at all. And I, I, I think that's kind of a barometer for how good a movie is. Um, you know, if, if I take away the ending to The Sixth Sense, it's still a great movie in my opinion. I see your point. I see, but I'm actually right now. I'm just trying to. I, I'm trying to. Say, I guess if I was asked about the usual suspects, it is the ending. It's the ending. It's the. It's the. It's the bit uh, with the mug drop and and then the reveal of verbal kint not limping. The only other scene that I'd argue is like genuinely a, a fantastic scene in that movie is uh, Benicio del Toro. Uh, yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah. in yeah. English, please. Absolutely. And I, all those guys are fun to watch. That, that is a truly terrific, varied cast of people. E even like people can say what they want. Stephen Baldwin gives a terrific performance in that movie. Like uh, there, there's, yeah. there's some really great moments, but I do think it's been one of the, it's been kind of lauded a little too high. It's, it's been, and it's the same way I feel about Wolf of Wall Street. I don't think Wolf of Wall Street is a good movie. Um, I, I love elements of it. You know, I think Jonah is tremendous. I think Leo is going for broke in a great way. Uh, I love Marty the way anybody loves Marty. Saying you like Marty is like saying you like pizza. It's duh. But <clears throat> I thought that movie was weirdly gratuitous and like kind of completely unredemptive. And I think people clapped back at me and said, well, that's the whole point. The whole point is that it's unredemptive. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to watch that. I don't really like that. Felt bloated and messy. I don't like it. Yeah, the third act, uh, you know, the bit with the, the plane crash and the, when the, uh, on the, the, the yacht, uh, that's, it does, it loses its way slightly. And I, I, I do kind of agree with you as well. I, I find it a very weird decision to have the actual Jordan Belfort like appear at the end in a cameo. I think that was sort of misjudged because it's, it's, you know, 
this guy was not a good dude. And then we're sort of going, but here he is in his movie about him that we bought from him. Yeah. And like, and also like all these guys who get caught for that stuff, you know, some of them might have a contrite, you know, sort of heart going into some new chapter of life. But mm. many of them just get back into some new scheme where they cover their tracks better. So it's like, yeah. F, F these guys. I don't, I don't want to support these idiots. All right. Final poster, though. It's going up. Your unpopular movie opinion, The Usual Suspects, is nothing without the ending. So we've arrived at our last set of doors. And now there is a queue of people who want to join you and Norm MacDonald in the cinema. Are you letting them in? You want a busy cinema? Absolutely. I want it packed. Fantastic. So the crowd pour into the auditorium and go wild. Before the movie begins, however, one of the best things, as we said, about the cinema is the trailers. We're going to play the trailer for the film you are most looking forward to. What is it? Yeah, actually, Killers of the Flower Moon with Leo and Marty. Um, I can't wait to see that film. I love that they added some newcomers to Marty's world like Brendan Fraser and and uh, I'm a huge huge fan of Jesse Plemons and everything he does and I think that that could be a really cool movie um the other one I want to throw out is the Iron Claw Iron Claw is the new Sean Durkin movie I believe mm-hmm. and it's about a pro wrestling family dynasty it's like a dark drama in the world of professional wrestling, it's got Jeremy Allen White, Zach Efron, Lily James, Maura Tierney, Maxwell Jacob Friedman, Harris, Harris Dickinson, like a huge, huge cast of great people. I'm really looking forward to that one. It's, a, it's an A24 movie. I'm going to let you have both, Paul. You can have both trailers, Killers of the Flower Moon and Iron Claw. So, to get the audience ready for your double bill, we're going to play your favorite shot or sequence in a movie. What's your favorite shot or sequence? I'm going to say the handheld trick shot that Steve Campanelli does in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, where Rockwell throws Caleb Landry Jones out the window then you follow yes. him down and uh, and Rockwell kind of finishes him off in the street. That, that moment, again, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. What a movie as well. I mean, I've been a huge Sam Rockwell fan for as long as I can remember. And the first time I got to interview him was for the premiere of that movie. And then seeing him pick up his Oscar for that role, the arc, his character, Dixon, I think he's called, goes on. It was so unexpected when I watched it. It was such a surprise. Ah, I love that movie. Love that. Right. Love that movie. Okay. So getting closer and closer to the double bill. As a very kind gesture, you have printed T-shirts for our audience with your favorite movie quotes on the front. What is your favorite movie quote? My favorite movie quote. Oh, that's so hard. There's so many, man. I mean, I think I have to go back to my favorite movies in general. I think I would say Kate Hudson in Almost Famous when she says, the truth just sounds different. Remind me of the moment she says that. uh, She asked Patrick Fugit his age. He lies to her. Then, you know, kind of tells his real age and she goes, the truth just sounds different. It's not only a brilliant line of dialogue, it's it's abundantly true in the real world. You almost recognize truth by how it sounds rather than fact checking it, because the truth does sound different, I think. Talk, wait, yeah, wait, wait walk me through. Walk me through that again. No, no, oh, no, no, no. L- let me let me be clear. The truth just sounds different is is not is not some metaphorical or alternate angled thing to say. It really is a is exactly what it says. When 
when somebody like a Bill Gates says, we're, we're genetically modifying food to where you can make it in a factory and do digital agriculture instead of in soil. I know I'm being lied to. Not, not, not because they're not doing it. It is possible they're doing it. But the fact that it's being presented as if it's a good thing, when really you're taking away jobs, you're going to inevitably be microdosing us with some sort of chemical, either known or unknown, that will have an effect long after Bill is dead. Uh, I know I'm being lied to. The truth sounds different. I don't need to. Lies and the truth both sound different, right? You almost don't need to fact check them when you hear them. Whereas, whereas when somebody tells me, hey, uh, they they found a bunch of dead mice in the Kentucky Fried Chicken bathroom. It's like, yeah, I believe that. I don't have to. (laughs) I don't have to look that up. The truth just sounds different. I don't know if that explained it or not. It does. I'm totally with you now. I get that. Right. That's going on the T-shirt. I love that. I want to put the explanation in small print on the back as well. But on the front, it says, the truth just sounds different. Our final thing to warm the audience up before we get to your double bill this evening, we're going to play your favorite song or score from a film. What's your favorite song or score? Film or film or score, uh, uh, score or soundtrack. I'm going to go, if it were a soundtrack, I'd say the soundtrack Craig Gillespie uh, put together for I, Tanya. Mm. Oh. And I think it's incredible. He's so good at that. How much and fun was it being part of that movie, by the way? That, I, I love that film. Thanks, man. That, that movie is kind of my favorite genre. Um, I'm obsessed with dark comedies that have some depth. You know, that's why I love Martin McDonough. That's why I love David O. Russell. That's why I love the Coen brothers. Um, yeah, no, that movie's incredible. I, I, I think score would be Alexandra, Alexander Desplat. His, I'm, I'm obsessed with his score for the imitation game. Oh yeah, I think he was Oscar nominated for that. Wait, let me let me catch up my brain. Yes, he was nominated for an Oscar for that, and I think if I remember rightly, he ended up beating himself. Uh, he was nominated for the Imitation Game and the Grand Budapest Hotel in the same year. So this would be the 2015 Oscars, and the Grand Budapest Hotel is what he actually won the Oscar for. And if I remember, because I was hosting uh, the coverage that year. I think I would have given it to Hans Zimmer for his score for Interstellar. But that's just me. Anyway, which do you want, though? Do you want Craig Gillespie or do you want Alexandra Desplat? You can only have one. and We don't have time to play both. We've got a double bill coming in. We're going to have to pick one. Just Desplat. Let's, let's, let's make people take us seriously in the theater. All right. Alexander Desplat, score for the imitation game. And here we are. It's time for the double bill. So the first movie is the movie that's most important to you. The second movie is the headline movie you're picking tonight. Let's start with the first movie. What movie is most important to you? That's the first film we're going to be playing tonight. Yeah, from about, you know, the trailers will get us to about 9.30, I'm guessing. So from from 9.30 to 11.30, we're going to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Number one favorite movie of all time. So do you remember when you first saw it? Oh, I must have been a kid. I was probably five years old, sitting on the carpet at uh, at my family home. And uh, I've watched it once a year, every year for about 30 years. So I've probably seen the film 30 to 35 times. And when you were five years old, like, because I, I, I think I saw it when I was too young to really get it and i was like i don't really understand what's oh. going on here but you got no, it yeah no, no no me too i mean i'm not saying i had a profound moment where i'm like is this what's really important like i didn't have a revelatory moment per se but but i would say by age eight or nine it started sinking in a little bit and you catch new things every time you know, I didn't even know he was going to commit suicide until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. You know, I always thought he's just like, oh, man, he's by a bridge and he's sad. It's like, 
No, they are very clearly insinuating that he's thinking of killing himself. It's it's crazy, isn't it? I, it's, it's crazy that it works as well because, you know, obviously he's lost the, uh, the $8,000. Uncle Billy's lost the $8,000. And, and so he's gone to Potter to beg Potter. And then you know that Potter's stolen it anyway. And he's like, no, I'm going to call the police instead. You know, you I'll see you in jail and all of that. And, and then he sort of talks about how, I think he tries to contact the the rich guy's rich friend, Sam in Europe. He's like, yeah, I tried to call him. I couldn't get hold of him. And then he's going to kill himself. I, I just, I, it's, it shouldn't work. Cause you should be like, Maybe try again before going straight to jumping off a bridge. But in, in defense, what that really is, is it's not just about the $8,000. Yeah. He feels like a loser. He feels like he never amounted to much. He thinks that he's invisible and then what, nothing he does matters. And, and he, he feels like a failure to his family because he can't give them more. Yeah. It's, yeah. But boy, oh boy, Uncle Billy, that stupid bastard. <laughs> he really, he really, he really lit the match for that explosion. Let me tell you, Uncle Billy, that thoughtless, four-eyed bastard. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, look, the guy has a pet raven and like lives with a menagerie of different animals in his home. Like there's a squirrel there. Don't don't entrust yeah. eight thousand dollars to him. Like there are warning signs. Also, there are also, hey Uncle Billy, get a filing cabinet, you <laughs> dumb bastard. <laughs> uh, right then, our first film is "It's a Wonderful Life," and we've arrived at the final moment. It is time to announce to our excited audience in this packed auditorium the headline movie, the movie out of all others you've picked as the climax tonight. What film are we watching, Paul? Everybody's had a good cry. It's 11.36. People are feeding the meters, urinating calling loved ones to literally leave a message and say how much they value them. It's 1142. <laughs> Everybody's a little tired and they're thinking, do I even want to stay for the next movie? I could kind of go to bed right now. But they see me and Norm and we're walking in. We're ready to go. And they're like, all right, well, maybe we'll stay for some. At midnight exactly, Wet Hot American Summer begins to play. <laughs> midnight madness wow so out of every movie on the planet the movie you're headlining with is wet hot american summer talk me through your thinking what's your working out here listen there's a lot of ways to go with this second feature the the you know the ultimate after the pen i don't need to show lawrence of arabia I don't need to show Jaws. I don't need to prove to everybody how much I love cinema. We're having a shared experience. We just had a cathartic cry with a classic black and white film. Now we're just going to eat candy. And I'm sure some people are hitting their vape pens and getting stoned. And we're all just going to enjoy an irreverent laugh together. And, and that cast is amazing. That soundtrack is amazing. And it really is for me, like, it's my favorite comedy of all time because it, it doesn't take itself so seriously and it doesn't play by anybody's rules. It's, it's really a punk rock piece of comedy that, uh, that also incidentally hosts a psychotic amount of really great people like Bradley Cooper. Christopher Maloney, Amy Poehler, Molly Shannon, Janine Garofalo, Michael Showalter. Like, it's insane how many awesome people are in that movie. And and Paul Rudd's in there as well, I think. I mean, oh, just hearing you talk about it like that, I need to watch it again. I, I don't know that it was as much a cult or has become as much of a cult over here as it is in the US. I only watched it, like, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. But I don't think I was paying 
proper attention. I'm going to need to watch this again. And uh, It's so quotable. There's so many absurd moments, and it'd be very fun to laugh with a bunch of people, including Norm MacDonald. Wow. I mean, this is some double bill. It's a wonderful life followed by wet, hot American summer. It could only exist in your virtual cinema, Paul. I, I can't imagine anyone's ever going to put that double bill in the real world. No, it's 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 pretty mishmashed. Uh, it's almost like wearing sweatpants with a, an Armani shirt. But um, <laughs> that's just kind of who I am, I guess. Oh, I love it. And that's it. The curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out at the movies. But before you go, it's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So I've got a box. What's in the box? <laughs> uh, right. This is your mystery question. Having played two real-life people on screen in Richard Jewell, and in Blackbird, whose biopic would you like to star in? Whose biopic would you like to star in? Have you got a wish list? I mean, I do. I almost, I almost feel like not answering that question anymore, not because it bothers me, but it, <clears throat> I feel like I'm always putting stuff out into the atmosphere and it, it never happens. But I would say two, two people I'm interested in playing, if the writing was really dynamic, would be... Uh, Ronnie Van Zant, the lead singer of Leonard Skinner, who famously died in the plane crash with the other band members. I think that would be cool. I may or may not have buddies who are writing that right now. Just trying to set that up. Uh, and you, are you coming at that as a Leonard Skinner fan? Is it, is it, is it, you, you were a fan of Leonard Skinner you, or you like the story? Re reverse operation. It was like I only knew two of their songs. Uh, their story fascinated me. And then I looked at them and I was like, yo, if I dropped like 60 pounds and took some vocal lessons to sharpen up, I could play that dude in like two months. So I think it would be a really cool opportunity to, to do my music biopic, but do my version of one, you know? Uh, it's not going to be yeah, a paint yeah, by yeah. the numbers. Watch Whitney Houston sing, I Will Always Love You. It, I think it's it would it would have to be a little more well, to, to to take that phrase, a little more of a punk rock version of a biopic, um, break some rules. Uh, I also think Teddy Roosevelt is fascinating. I would love to play Teddy Roosevelt and uh, show both his flawed side and his virtuous side as all of us possess. I'd love to see you in both of those, mate. I think that would be fantastic. That's it then. The taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality, but before you leave, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with Norm MacDonald at 9.15pm. You're sitting at the bottom of the middle section with your feet up on the metal bar. You are having impossible nuggets with ranch dressing, Sprite Zero with extra ice and a pack of Sour Patch Kids. You're having buttery salted popcorn or kettle corn if they have it we are watching the trailer for killers of the flower moon and iron claw we are watching the shot which is the amazing handheld trick shot from three billboards outside ebbing missouri we are listening to alexander desplat's score from the imitation game and we're wearing t-shirts <laughs> with the truth just sounds different it's a wonderful life is our first movie Followed by Wet Hot American Summer. You've taken your shop off while I was reading. I just, I just thought it'd be funny because you were staring at the paper <laughs> reading off of it. And I'm like, it'd be, it'd be so funny if you looked back and I was suddenly shirtless. I just thought it'd be funny. Sorry. Oh, awesome. wow. Paul, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I had a great time, man. This is such a fun format. You did it impressively uh, well. I enjoyed my time. I hope to make the trip again. Man, thank you so much for coming on. 
And as Paul's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, it's your chance to win a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema. As I said at the start, the lovely people at Odeon have given us a pair of tickets to give away every week. So if you'd like the chance of getting these tickets, all you have to do is leave us a review of the show or comment on our socials. You can leave a review on whichever podcast platform you use, be it Apple Podcasts or other, or you can get in touch on any of our socials, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, where we are at Trip to Movies Pod. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full ad-free video interview for Paul Walter Hauser and indeed every guest we've had on our Trip to the Movies Patreon, as well as early access to the podcast too. And if you'd like to get a taste of what those video interviews are like, you can subscribe to our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel, where we put up clips on a weekly basis for your enjoyment. And that really is it. I will be back next week when another special guest takes us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.